Thanks. And uh, thank you very much for coming, everyone, and, and for um, taking the time this evening to come and listen to us uh, talk about the exhibition, uh, how, it, how it formed, and looking back on the impact and the significance of RMIT uh, and its relationship to photography in Melbourne. Um, I almost got, I got very close with this. I, I selected the panel for a number of reasons. Um, obviously because of their, their legacy and their contribution to RMIT, but I was also trying to get 130 years of staff at RMIT, but I got 135, so we were very close. A little bit of beautiful mathematics, almost. Um, so just by way of introduction, um, <clears throat> on, my, on my right here we've got Alex Syndicus. Alex started working here, um, sorry, Alex graduated in 1979, uh, and then he began working here in 1984 and finished in uh, 2014. Uh, and Alex had a, a, a range of roles uh, at the university um, from student to staff member and to program manager. Um, next to, uh, in, in particular, in the uh, Bachelor of Photography program. Uh, next, to, um, next to Alex is Associate Professor Gail Spring. And Gail worked in scientific photography starting in 1992? 1988. 1988. See, now we're up to 139 years. It's just not going to work. Uh, 1988 and uh, finishing just this year. And uh, Gail is now an adjunct professor. Finishing three, four years ago. Four years ago. So that subtracts the number of All right. Excellent. All right. We're getting, we're getting close. Uh, I think John... Uh, John Bolland going the other direction. John Bolland has the, the record for this evening. He began in uh, 1974 uh, and he started working at Philip Institute of Technology, uh, which later became RMIT University, one of our kindred institutions that we'll talk about tonight. Uh, and John worked in a range of roles, uh, beginning as a technician, transitioning to an academic and also uh, as a student completing an MA with us as well. And then directly to my left, directly to my left is Pauline Anastasio and Pauline is currently the program manager for the Bachelor of Arts Photography program here and Pauline's been here since 1991. So we've got uh, an incredible history ranging from uh, uh, the entire scope or the entire spectrum of contributions through the photographic discipline at RMIT. I'll just give you a, a very brief background um, to the project and then we'll, we'll begin the questions. So there are two conditions that led to this exhibition happening, two very uh, interesting conditions. One is that through a survey of books and exhibitions and uh, contributions that a range of people have made to the trajectory and narrative of Australian photographic history, it became evident that that, that history uh, almost ignored, maybe not ignored, but certainly uh, excluded the educational institutions in, in that relationship and, how, and their involvement in that history. And so it seemed like an important uh, part of, of completing or, or dealing with with that, and then of course the second condition was that RMIT University is the oldest institu educational institution to teach photography in the world. 
it wasn't the first. Uh, we began in 1887 uh, when the university opened as a working men's college uh, and then have continued to teach photography right through until today, which is 130 years, of course, and that makes us the oldest in the world. So those, those two conditions became somewhat of a compelling reason to put on an exhibition like this. So the sorts of questions that I want to ask our panel uh, are to do with their relationship to photography and some of the internal and external machinations and forces that played out to develop photography at RMIT the way that it has come about uh, and to also tell some interesting anecdotes and some stories uh, and relate each of those to their relationship to photography and how that's contributed to RMIT. And of course, uh, happy to take questions from everyone here in any shape or form. And at any point during the evening, you're welcome to uh, just let me know if you'd like to ask a question. So the first question to our panel really is just a, a, a brief uh, comment from each of them about how they essentially started uh, with the institution and what their early relationship was and what it was that drew them to here. So we might start with you, Alex, if that's all right. Sure. <clears throat> okay. Um, well, I, I was a student here in 1976, and I guess what sort of led me to be a student here was um, what was happening around that time. In fact, um, as a young teenager uh, in the 60s, you know, one cannot past things like David Bailey, what he was doing in London, what was happening in London. So you had David Bailey over there and then you had um, you know, the, the Beatles and everything. So music changed, photography changed. And, um, and that was something that was sort of giving some sort of accreditation to, wow, you know, there's a lot of things happening in photography. And, and I suppose in, in Melbourne, uh, I remember even going to, to see... Uh, um, you know Henry Talbot uh, at the what was then called the AIP, and um, and he was talking about well this is what we're doing in photography and this is what we're doing in fashion, and if, if you probably know about the history of Henry Talbot, Talbot and Newton were the two that sort of started that back in the 60s, Helmut Newton, and they were just around the corner from here, just up in Latrobe Street. And so I remember seeing these things. I thought, wow, you know, this is great. And then I guess the thing that really endorsed the whole aspect of photography uh, for me was um, Blow Up. Uh, when Blow Up came out, wow, you know, this is what fashion photography is about. Having, you know, a, a convertible Bentley and the phone and all these women and fashion. And so that was kind of an endorsement. But I wasn't into that scene. I was more, I was more the Sam Haskin kind of person, because I love studio and I love perfectionists in studio work, and Sam Haskin from South Africa, some of you may know, um, was a guru of, 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 uh, of studio work. And um, so that, I guess, is what sort of got me started in coming here, and then I knew that coming here to RMIT, it was one of the best fashion photography and studio photography uh, institutions. Uh, there was Parangis down the road over there, but RMIT had the, 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 the real mecca of, of, uh, of photography here. And that's what, I guess, started me here. 
And then when I finished here, I went off to Rochester to continue more studies over there. But that's another story. <laughs> and of course, we've got uh, the Helmut Newton. Yes, and, uh, uh, there's Helmut a Helmut Newton image there. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you, Alex. Gail, perhaps you could. All right. Mine's not nearly as exciting as uh, <laughs> Alex's, uh, but I do like the cars and the women and all that. That's great. Um, I uh, came here from the U.S., and prior to that, I'd spent 10 years at a medical school as director of photography in a pathology department, which also had forensic science. I always married science and imaging uh, together, and I loved that. And the way I got to RMIT was, as I've said to many people over many, many years, I think I was having a bad day. And I happened to read in a professional journal that in some island somewhere in the South Pacific, which I had never really thought about, there was a job to come in and coordinate biomedical forensic photography. And in that context of the bad day, I wrote a letter. And somehow they replied. And somehow I got on the phone talking across the ocean back in 1987, uh, which was not that easy to do back then and very expensive. Um, and the interview went reasonably well. Uh, one question that I really loved that came from Glennis Grant, some of you will know Glennis Grant. Um, she said, I've never met any of these people, and she said, and why do you want to leave your job in Texas? And I said, I don't. And there was an incredibly long international silence on the phone because they were wanting me to complain and I really always wanted to come to Australia. But again, long story shorter, um, after that interview they invited me over. I thought Melbourne was the best place in the universe to eat uh, and I decided to stay. So I did. Excellent, thank you. And Gail's, uh, Gail's image is in the, in the back room there. Um, Pauline, how about you? Um, I came to study here in 1991, around about 1991. I had a short career as a teacher, a high school teacher, which I loved, but um, I had children and it was an opportunity for me to change um, careers. And for me, um, photography was something that I had done while I was travelling. I had a camera, I had small children, I carried a camera with me everywhere. And I wanted to, to have an occupation where I could... I could make work and make a living from it. And that's, you know, the travel and the children is, is, is something that I still find inspires people to come into um, photography now. So I was a little bit different. I was, I was, I loved photography and I loved, I just loved having a camera in my hand the whole time. And I felt it was a way that I could be creative and still work and still have children and do the whole thing. So that's why I came in. But uh, a little bit different to Alex. I also had sort of found the power of photography as being a subversive um, tool. And that's something that um, came to me, um, actually, not before I started the course, but very early on in the course. And so um, that power of subversion, a, a little bit later, you know, I was looking at um, um, Barbara Kruger and, um, oh, and one of the best things that happened, and you will remember this really well, Alex, when, uh, was when uh, Andreas Serrano had his Piss Christ in the gallery, at the National Gallery here, and there was a complete uproar. Archbishop Pell, um, uh, it, he, he tried to invoke the blasphemy law that hadn't been used since the 1800s. Um, and I, I think that uh, it was just exciting. So that was my entry. 
Excellent. Yeah, I remember the Peace Christ. Peace Christ. lasted about a week, didn't it? Okay. Thanks, Pauline. Uh, John, how about you? John uh, started at uh, Philip Institute of Technology, which, uh, of course, was one of uh, our kindred institutions right through the, uh, the formation of technology networks in Australia and certainly in Melbourne, uh, which then ultimately became, after the Dawkins reforms, part of RMIT in 1992. Yeah, I think it was 92. Yeah, but John, John started out at uh, Philip Institute in 1974. Thanks, John. Yeah, it was actually Preston Institute. Preston, yes. Yeah. And then some years later there was a, some kind of a, a Dawkins-type um, investigation and it became Philip Institute. Um, I, started, I was interviewed by Henry Talbot for the job as tech in a very small department which at that point was aligned with the design department. So it was art and design. Photography was aligned with, uh, uh, with design initially. Then we went with art and, and so on. But um, yeah, look, they were fantastic times, really. Um, you know, there were bands playing. This is a thunder, I should add. There were bands playing every Wednesday, I, I believe. And, you know, most of you would wouldn't have heard of them, but there was Captain Matchbox and the sports and, and so on. Um, so it was a great place to, to work. And, um, you know, I met... Um, Ian Lobb started sometime afterwards as a, as a casual. And Ian had... I think he'd got back from the States um, studying with... Um, I've forgotten. But, no, it wasn't Emmett. That was Les. But, um, yeah, so Ian Lobb and Bill Heinemann started up the Photographer's Gallery in, um, on Punk Road in South Yarra. And for me, that was a, a, a revelation because they were getting people like Harry Callahan uh, over here, the artist and the work. So uh, who else was here? There was... Um, um, William Clift, um, Ralph Gibson did a workshop. Uh, you know, he was a present for about a week, and he did a workshop down at Envelope, which was fantastic. So that was my introduction to more of the art side of photography, I guess. And uh, for a young, I was quite young at the time. Uh, yeah, meeting Ian and um, Bill Heimerman was his business partner at the Photographers Gallery. And, yeah, they were, they were really breaking new ground in Melbourne. There was also Rennie Ellis, who had... Alex would remember the name of the gallery, I think, but in the gallery in South Yarra. Um, the gallery? Uh, Rennie Ellis's gallery. Yes, um, Br Brumbles. That's it, yeah. Um, so it was early days for photography um, and very exciting days. So, uh, you know, some... Time later, uh, probably 76, we were introduced to Les Walkling. And Les came in uh, fresh from working with uh, Frederick Summer and Emmett Gowan in the States. And uh, yeah, that was, again, that was an exciting new, uh, new developments for, for, for me as a, a youngster. But uh, yeah, um, yeah. So we had 
Well, later on, we had also Janina Green, Ruth Madison, Fiona Hall as staff members. That was quite a few years later, but they were all, for me, they were all very influential. Um, yeah. Thank you. So what we've sort of started to set up is, is part, of the, part of what was revealed through this project, which is the, the cyclic nature of influence. And so each of the people here, um, uh, Alex and Pauline worked together, but then Pauline was a student when Alex was a staff member. John, was, John actually taught me at some point uh, when I started in the early 90s. And so there's a... a and, and, um, you know, there are many people here that Gail taught and many people that then came back to work at the university. And so something that was revealed through this project is that cyclic nature of, of influence and how uh, someone would uh, come and study and then whilst they were here they would be exposed to different artists and photographers working in Melbourne. Uh, they would then go graduate and go out and work and then they would inform the next generation of people that were studying here and then some of them would come back and start working here and then inform the next generation. And so we have uh, a condition in Melbourne where the, the university's impact and its input into the way that people were taught and how that informed the things that they photographed became really quite evident through that, uh, through that sort of the, the people coming in and then coming back and what have you. And then you know, having a panel like this, we can start to see where some of that influence lies and just the different perspectives that people have brought into, um, into how they have been engaging with photography. But something that, that, that was quite interesting is uh, each of our members sort of commented on what was happening in Melbourne at the time and how that informed not only their interest to come and study here, but also the way that they started making some of the works. So we might um, move on. Alex, in the, in the 1980s, you, you talked about um, the reputation of of RMIT and, and mentioned other, um, other institutions, in particular Paran. Paran was very much um, sort of operating through that uh, fine art focus. And RMIT had developed a strong reputation in, uh, in studio photography. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about some of your experiences in, in relationship to that and how uh, some of the artists and photographers that are in this show uh, how they engage with that and what, what sort of, and what that meant for their own practice. Because mm. you taught quite a lot of people. Well, yeah, here. I taught quite a few of yeah. them. Um, studio was a very, very strong... We were the only, um, in the 80s, um, I was there as a, as a staff member, but even when I was a student, we were the only institution that actually taught studio virtually five days a week using Plowball 5.4 cameras. All the others were using sort of small, small format cameras and things, but, but uh, RMIT took on that whole thing because we were connected with so many other institutions. We were connected with Photokina that was happening. We were going, uh, the, the, the course director was going there on a yearly basis and bringing back a lot of ideas and things from Photokina. A group actually went to Photokina and, um, and, and, uh, you know, and worked with Avedon uh, on a special project. You know, so it did get a reputation, and then we were having exhibitions uh, on a yearly basis. We we're always student of the year for uh, for the studio discipline of the course. So studio was a very very strong. And then we had you know visiting people that would come through, and I remember going to to Sydney and see my my you know my my god uh, Sam Haskin, and um, 
And then he sort of looked at some of the work that we were doing at RMIT and he was really impressed with that. Um, so there was a, a very strong aspect of studio involved. Um, and then you had people on the outside that acted as mentor. During that period of time, you had a mentorship. So you would work directly with people like Rob Imhoff, you worked directly with Brian Brandt, you worked with John Golings, you worked with you know, uh, a whole range of people. John Street, he was another perfectionist in studio. So that was the, 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 the main structure of the program back then, is that yes, we were here to do theory, we were here to do some prac things in the darkroom, etc. but then you worked about probably two thirds or two fifths of your time here um, working with these incredible guys out there in the industry. So that built up that reputation. And that was a, that was a strong reputation, uh, not just within Australia, but also internationally, in particular with the, the Photokino link. With Photokino link, with Brooks yeah. Institute, as I see a person has a t-shirt <laughs> of uh, Brooks Institute, and also, um, as I had connections with uh, Rochester Institute of Technology, um, there was a lot of things going backwards and forth um, with that particular program, who at the time was one of the biggest programs in, uh, in, in the States, you know, 900 uh, undergraduates and uh, 63 master's students back in 1980. It was a lot, of, a lot of people there. So a lot of those things were kind of going backwards and forth and it was an exciting time. And uh, uh, Gail can, uh, was also part of that because he came in 88, so I remember Gail coming and, hey, what's this Texan guy? He goes, hey, it's not the shoot presidents over there. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right, yeah. You're trying right now. <laughs> <laughs> I wish they succeed. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it was an exciting time. And so, Gail, when, when you came here, you mentioned that, um, that you'd never sort of really heard of Australia. Uh, I'm sure you'd heard of Australia. But not, that, not quite. But that, uh, but that it, was, um, it was a very new, uh, a new place for you. What were sort of some of the comparisons between what you were doing in the States uh, to what you started doing here? And how did science... What were some of the... Where did science fit into all of this? Well, strangely, to start with the last point that you just made, uh, the history of, of photography here at RMIT actually was born out of science and engineering. Uh, it, it existed for many, many of that 130 years under science and engineering. So it wasn't odd that we had a science stream and that we had people that were uh, interacting with uh, law enforcement and uh, CSIRO and uh, all the hospitals and whatnot. That, that wasn't an odd thing at all. Um, it was in about 1986 and 87 when they wanted to, they were looking to expand this. They were looking to expand medical photography because that was our main employment uh, in 88 through about 92, 93, something like that. Um, and they were looking for somebody to coordinate and sort of bring in some fresh ideas, uh, I guess. So uh, thus the advertisement, my response, and here I am. I did my research on uh, RMIT and, and the program and looked into it very well, and I was incredibly impressed. Uh, I already had an internship program out of the University of Texas with Brooks Institute, and one of the lecturers that taught Greg here uh, was a good friend of mine, and he and I worked together and swapped students around and did projects and things. RIT, you can't come from America and not be affiliated with RIT. So in a funny sort of way, and especially when I met Alex, we already knew a lot of people together. 
and, and, and a lot of our philosophy and our approach to photo education was very similar. Uh, the main, I suppose, difference in ours is that we put quite a bit of emphasis on theory. Uh, in the sciences, you need to know why you do something, you need to know how you do something, and you need to problem solve without thinking about, is it going to be a pretty picture? Is it going to be a saleable picture? Is it a commercial picture? We look at images as data. We look at images as accuracy. So it was a nice, lovely balance, especially when you ran into people like Alex who could get excited about anything. Uh, <laughs> to, to have people, Alex wasn't the only one, uh, who really loved our science students and gave them a lot of the grounding in the studio work and the field work and all of that stuff in the, in the high end of aesthetics while we were over here plodding along, uh, teaching them about all sorts of things that they all hated. But today, when I run into some, one, two, three, four, five, well, must admit that the theory did actually probably make you a slightly better photographer uh, in one way or another. Um, so I think the blend was, was great. It really worked well for us. And of course, uh, for many, many years, uh, science and photography were, were known as uh, two sides of the same coin. And that its foundation as a, as a scientific discipline meant that that knowledge and that understanding of uh, how, these, how optics and chemistry worked was a fundamental part of what, mm. what students were doing. Yeah. Um, I might just flip over here, Pauline. You came in uh, at, at the end of the 80s when, um, when, when that studio aesthetic was well established, but you mentioned in your introduction that, that your, your insight and your understanding of photography was coming out of things like Barbara Kruger and... Um, walking around with a camera and constantly reflecting the world that, that you're living in, and natural light, of course. And so, how did that play out for you? What, was the, um, what were the conditions that led you there? And then also, um, how did you respond to those? I'm looking for a little bit of tension here at some point. <laughs> we'll get there in the end. You're not going to get it yet. Oh, I'm going to try. <laughs> the studio classes for me were wonderful. So I didn't, sorry, <laughs> I, I didn't come in um, knowing that, uh, you know, there were, I could use lights inside and that I could, sorry, um, and that I could make images uh, using a 4.5 camera. I'd never seen a 4.5 camera before. Um, but there was um, some magic there that, you know, was undeniably fantastic. And really, all of those people who did those courses, those, those studio classes, um, came out with um, an, a craft and hopefully an aesthetic that set them up. So I can't... That's, that's something that, you know, was really valuable. Uh, on the other hand, <laughs> on the other hand, maybe um, s some more concentration in things that related to the world a little more might have been also useful at that time. So, um, although, you know, we were also asked to go out and shoot and we were also asked to engage in the world, not in a theoretical way, in the way that we might talk about it now, but certainly, yes. Yeah. So one of the one of the themes for the show, in, indeed, the room we're sitting in now is is on insight, and uh, about twenty kilometres north, of course, was Preston, which later moved to Bandura. And uh, John, perhaps you could reflect a little bit on uh, what was the how 
you guys uh, out there were viewing photography in relationship to knowing what was happening in, in the city and uh, whether or not there was any collaboration or how, um, how indeed that difference about looking at the world uh, informed the way that photography developed out in Bandura, Preston. Yeah, I guess the, the influences were from, as I said earlier, you know, Ian Lobb, Bill Heinemann, who, who didn't work there, he was uh, Ian's partner at the gallery, then Les Walkling, and, you know, this opened up a lot of possibilities regarding uh, the work that was being done, and I, I just think it was... Um, you know, our idea of RMIT photography, that it was more of a commercial course, and it was actually a whole lot of other things as well. So we were, I, myself, uh, I guess we were a little bit naive about that. And until we joined, so primarily we had, I guess, you know, a fine art background, if, you know, if, if you like. When we joined RMIT, in 92, 93, whenever that was, I guess there was some tension there between the two, the two sides, you know, if, if you like. Mm -hmm. I, you know, there's no denying that. That was, that was certainly there. And I think that, you know, it kind of attenuated as, as we went on. Um, yeah, does that answer your uh, Yeah, question? to some extent. I mean, in, in that period, in that, in that sort of 90s period, we had um, three very independent and very strong uh, photographic programs existing in various states throughout um, what is the group of RMIT. We had the, the, the very strong commercial photography, um, bachelor photography program. We had the very strong science program that was incredibly well connected to global industries. And then we had the fine art program uh, that was, um, again, very well connected internationally and had really strong reputations in relationship to the staff that were teaching there. And so when, in, in that early 90s period, these things started to morph and, and amalgamate, uh, it became an interesting difference in the narrative that formed where photography sits now. But something else... Uh, happened at that time that probably had an even more profound impact, which is, of course, technology. And the photography for, gee, I guess, um, for maybe 150 years had enjoyed an incremental improvement in the same technology. That is to say that films became more sensitive, uh, optics became improved, or was improved, uh, papers, uh, chemicals understanding of processes and the equipment and the cameras and the electronics uh, to do with uh, light meters, all of these things made incremental improvements of the same technology. But of course, in the 90s, the, uh, the so-called revolution hit. Certainly by the mid-90s, it was starting to emerge. And by the late 90s, it was definitely a thing. And so we might just shift the conversation a little bit towards what kind of impact those new technologies had on the way that we'd been teaching photography and just how fast and how easily adaptable we were to embracing those new technologies. We might well, start with yeah. you, Paul. Sorry. 
If I may just add, I should, have, I should have said this before. You know, the students were almost rioting in the corridors when we told them that we were closing the dark rooms and adapting, adopting, adapting digital. That was probably 94, I guess. And we bought the first computer, you know, a single computer. And, uh, you know, Les was absolutely adamant that we were going to go digital and not continue with, with analogue. And, of course, that was, you know, was that a mistake or, you know, it was a real push forward, which was fantastic because we learned a lot in those, those early days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the darkrooms were dismantled and we, yeah, we had to negotiate, or not even negotiate, but we had to, uh, yeah, try and explain to the students that, look, we can do one or the other, let's, let's move forward. So it was really interesting times. Yeah. Pauline, your experience with that? Uh, that happened much later for us, I seem to remember. It was not in the mid-90s, it was into the 2000s. One of you might, yeah. Alex? Um, well, yeah, probably a little bit before. Yeah, a little bit. Um, but I do remember. Um, I do remember there was a lot of controversy, like you, but it wasn't our students who were um, fighting it out. It was um, the staff. There were staff members who absolutely wanted to stick to an analog world. Uh, we knew that that digital was coming in, and we knew that. Um, but we didn't know to you know to what extent the digital world world would impact on us, and so. Um, that was a really, really difficult transition because, as you mentioned, and you mentioned earlier, Alex, we had this tradition that was set in studio work, analogue studio, large format cameras. And, um, you know, it had been the way that we learned how to make photographs. And all of a sudden there was this new technology. I remember, um, I do remember lots of arguments about that transition. But for myself, I remember um, being involved in a show that at the QCP with not photographers. Oh, there was one photographer from our department, but uh, but from um, I think it was media, uh, media and communication people. Anyway, um, where we took our small mobile phones, they were the little Nokia's that uh, spat out three megabyte images. And um, we decided to take a series of images using those cameras. We blew them up uh, into A0 images and had a show. We had two shows, actually, one at QCP and one at here at First Sight. And um, I was very, very wary of showing my images to anyone in the photography department <laughs> because they were pixelated and there was no colour correction. Um, and at the time, it was a bit of experimentation. We didn't know where it was going. I, I had no idea that um, the mobile phone would turn into what it is now and has changed digital photography, not just photography, but digital photography, the DSLR and the phone, as in, you know, what both of them do and what, what the phone does in society uh, to such an extent. So uh, it was a really difficult transition for us, I think. Alex, how did you how do you position yourself in that debate or the, the conversation? Well, I think um, with the merger, can we talk about the merger? Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. With the merger of Philip Institute, and I think uh, which was in '92, I think it was August '92 or something like that. But anyway, it was um, a lot of things were happening at that time. There was um, 
There was Philip Institute that we knew that was going to be merging with RMIT, so that was a very big thing. So it was getting, the, the area was getting bigger and bigger. And then we also had a very, very per different person that came on the scene, and that was the then um, head of photography, which was Robin Williams. And he was a real visionary. He came to the program and he could, you know, he, he came when, when it was the Department of Photography, which embraced science and, 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 and the, uh, the studio and the commercial side. He took that on and then with the, the merging of Philip Institute, he then took that much bigger role of bringing in, embracing their, their, their disciplines so it brought in meteor arts, it, it had scientific photography, it had BA photography, and then at the same time, there was a kind of a reshuffling of different departments within RMIT, and we, we took on um, advertising, the Department of Advertising. So suddenly Robin, who could see all this, he came from, from England, and um, he, was, um, he was able to then say, okay, we've got advertising, we've got... We've got uh, scientific photography. Now we're going to get media arts, and they bringing together. They're bringing fine art photography. They're bringing sound. They're bringing all of these disciplines. So suddenly, from department of photography, it became department of visual communication. And at the same time, also Swinburne were were sort of shedding some of their programs. And two of the programs that they were shedding was film, which was the school of film in the 60s and 70s, uh, they were shedding film and they were shedding animation. And Robin could see that aspect of that particular program at Swinburne to uh, come and join forces here. So uh, Robin took um, animation uh, and he then passed on uh, the film aspect to VCA. And that's where VCA has the film aspect, but, but we took on that animation. So it brought all these disciplines together, and Robin could just kind of make this absolutely work to, you know, in absolute synchronization, and that sort of put us on a bigger, bigger scale. And because of Robin's influence globally, um, he was able to sell our program worldwide. So I think it was a very, very exciting time, run about that 92, 93, 94. And, uh, and then uh, uh, we also brought in other people from Philip Institute. We had Bill Gregory, who then became the Dean of Faculty of Art and, and, uh, and Design. So it was a very exciting time that we were living in. And, and I think those, so there were some staff members that sort of felt, you know, as Pauline mentioned, you know, they just didn't want to deal with the technology, they didn't want to deal with this, or this, and they sort of, sort of moved on a bit. But, but the others that took it on board, and I'll always remember one thing that Robin said. He called us all in, and there was, by that time, it was getting quite big. It was a big place. He says, well, it's like being at a train station. You either hop on the train and join us, or you stay on the platform. And I'll never forget that. And I felt, wow, this guy is really, you know, it's such an exciting to be with him. What did you think? Um, I think so. You, you had some reservations, maybe <laughs> at times, but we all did. But I think it was an exciting time. Did you get on the train, guy? <laughs> we 
were driving the frickin' truck. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, we so many of us. <laughs> if you're in science, you're in technology. Get over it. Yeah. Things move, they new stuff, you get it, you want one, you try it, you play with it. My first digital camera came in 19, you wouldn't know, but you might correct me a little bit, 1982, when Canon came into our forensic science department and said, I've got a 0.5 megapixel camera, it's gonna change your life. <laughs> and we looked at it, tried it, laughed, and said, well, when you grow up, come back. Uh, and it wasn't until the 90s before that actually did occur. Um, science embraced technology. We were using technology. We had computers before anybody else with Bob and all of that. Um, when I got off the plane, in fact, this really irritates me about Qantas. <laughs> I flew from Dallas to LA with a Macintosh SE, brand new, brand new computer in the overhead. I flew from Los Angeles to Sydney with my Macintosh SE in the overhead. I got from Sydney and they said, I'm sorry, you're gonna to have to check that. I said, I've just come halfway around the freaking world with the most expensive computer in the universe <laughs> and you're gonna make me put it in hold. And they went, yep, or g'day, or whatever they said back then. <laughs> but, Technology has been a part of us, and, and just to tie this back into RMIT quickly, it, yes it has, we've always been into technology. Um, and one of the things that we did in about 1990, what was it, when did you come? 94. Uh, in 1993, I went to the Vice Chancellor at that time and I said, yeah. you know, the, the technology uh, train is, is passing, we're on it, but we can't afford the ticket. We need somebody to come in and give us all of this. So I said, I want a, a scholarship, I want money, and I want to find somebody. Went to my friends at Brooks. Uh, Brooks said, we got the guy, he's sitting here in the front now. Um, and so that was RMIT's support for us to say, well, we need a staff member who actually comes in and does this. And Greg Humphreys pretty well designed the entire digital imaging approach for the arts and the sciences. Uh, and two years later, the vice chancellor came in with another pot of money for another person to come in and help us out. Mm. So RMIT actually treated us very well mm. from the upper levels. Um, and so technology was a part of our life. Of course we were going to do that. Let me put one little caveat to that. We never gave up the analog materials and equipment and whatnot either. Yeah because I've always lived by this statement. People have asked if you're a photographer and they've seen your work, they always ask, ooh, what kind of camera do you use? My answer is, for what? Because I'm gonna pick film, digital, large format, medium format, CCTV. Uh, I don't know, you haven't told me what I'm photographing or imaging yet. So what kind of equipment do I use? I use whatever's appropriate and the technology is always a part of that. There's a, uh, oh, thank you. Uh, there's a somewhat, a lovely anecdote, urban myth, that, um, that sort of floats around that is unattributed, so we're not quite sure on the validity of this, but uh, apparently Ansel Adams, the, uh, the wilderness photographer, uh, met Ernst Hemingway uh, at, a, at a function somewhere, and Ernest Hemingway was, was uh, gushing over how wonderful Ansel Adams' images were. 
know, you take such amazing photographs, they're, they're so poetic, they're so beautiful, what kind of camera do you use? And of course, Ansel Adams' response was, well, you write the most amazing stories, what kind of typewriter do you use? So the idea of that relationship between technology and what is it that I'm photographing is, uh, is fundamentally important. 